0: but for them to learn together and to enjoy great teaching and happy times. My title is Jealousy Wins uh, from Zechariah chapter 8. I'm committed to uh, um, expositional preaching and teaching, and that means I go right through the Bible and try to expose what it's saying. Uh, The method to get there is called exegesis, which is a theological term meaning to bring out what's in the text. Uh, it's, it's Greek, like exit, exegesis. Um, the opposite is co- called eisegesis, which is to bring into the text what you want to see there. And that's all, all too common, and we all should be very careful, uh, right, to avoid that. So we're trying to be disciplined. And I work right through the Bible, trying not to uh, edit or skip over parts that are are fun or difficult. Today's text is a wonderful text. We're kind of biting off a bit. I'm going 1 through 17 uh, of Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8 really introduces topics that will be touched on several other times as we finish the book of Zechariah together. But the title stands... Jealousy wins, because it starts out with a big statement about God being jealous. Let me read, I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we'll open with prayer. Zechariah chapter 8. The word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. May I add, may I add, hallelujah. (laughs) That is awesome, powerful word of God. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, strip away the scales that cover our eyes to see Your majesty today, O Lord, draw us to yourself, we pray. Could we worship you in our hearts and minds? Could we please know more about you, be drawn to you, no matter where we are in our own spiritual journey? O Lord, in your kindness, draw us to yourself. Reveal yourself to us. And uh, thank you. Amen. Okay. So I think it's highly defensible that I said jealousy wins. Uh, God saying, I am I'm motivated by jealousy. Now, you know, we that kind of rubs us a little bit because we're sort of taught that perhaps jealousy is just a bad, evil, destructive uh emotion. Uh and here God is, is just throwing it out there, right? Verse two has it three times, right? Thus, it's, by the way, the word in the English Bible is 32 times in the Old Testament. Here, right in here, it's three times in one verse, right in our passage, which makes it kind of significant. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with wrath. What does that mean? Well, he's not exactly tepid. He's not like lukewarm water here. He is very committed to Zion, uh, very committed to his people, the people he has chosen. Uh, he, he isn't about to let the relationship just go. You know, okay, well, you do your thing and I'll do my thing, and you know, maybe, maybe ten years from now, I'll talk to you. No, he's saying, I'm I'm zealous about this. I'm really into this. Um, let me just take a minute on this this is somebody else's artwork it's el kana the jealous god that's the hebrew here's the hebrew some of you might know a little bit of hebrew uh, this is this is god el and then kana it's the i am god the jealous god and this is straight from holy scripture it's used a few times uh, in for example let me give the references here for you read a few of these Uh, in Exodus, right in in the Ten Commandments, the famous Ten Commandments, this word. This is Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, this is other gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. It's repeated in Exodus 34, verse 14. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So again, in the Hebrew text, Jealous God, that's, that's exactly what you would see. I, I copied and pasted it for you. Um, and this artwork kind of says it. It's a, it's a burning passion of real commitment. He's not going to share his people with other gods. He's not going to just let them go. Uh, In the book of Malachi, God says that he is against divorce because marriage is supposed to be a sign of God's relationship with us. And for God, he's chosen his people, and he's not going to divorce them to marry some other people. He's pursuing them, He's going to restore them. And you can hear that in the words of this. "Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will save my people. you know, I'm going to go and pursue them and win them back and bring them to myself." Um, Deuteronomy 4:24 puts it this way: "For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous." God God wants us to be exclusive in, in the relationship with him. Uh, he doesn't want to share us with others. He doesn't want us to be infatuated with other gods. He wants us to be committed to him completely and fully. Uh, he is the jealous God. Now, because of this jealousy... He says, let's just look at the text, verse 3 again. He says, I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst. He is saving his people. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. He's going to completely restore it. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, this is interesting because I... Theologians and Bible students over the years read things like this and puzzle. What exactly is the fulfillment of these zealous promises, right? These big, bold, amazing promises. Uh, What exactly is their fulfillment? And um, because it's related to the future, there's a lot of unknowns about it. And I think, first of all, I think it's very important to be humble as we approach the future. Uh, let's not be dogmatic about predicting exactly what God means by the future. Uh, but I am led to believe that he's talking about something that hasn't quite happened yet. I am actually led to believe that he, this, this, this is partially fulfilled. The people at this time do partially enjoy this, but it's not, it's not fully fulfilled. It's not fully fulfilled even in this. I think this hearkens toward a time in the future. Again, I, I hold this view humbly and not dogmatically, but I do believe that, that there will be a time when this is fully, shockingly fulfilled on this earth uh, where God's going to do this fantastic thing and somehow restore His own people, the Jews, to whom he made many, many promises, he'll restore them to the land, and it'll be a fantastic illustration of his love, his commitment, his power. Um, if you look at at some of the promises um, in the the Bible, in fact, you go to this is. Uh, Genesis 15. We just read this this week. You could turn here. I mean, the family and I just read this this week, past week. Uh, Genesis chapter 15. This is God's repeat promise to Abraham. He's still called Abram in this text. And if you look at Genesis 15 verse 18 specifically, a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture, uh, Genesis 15. But here's the repeat of the covenant or promise that he makes to Abram. And he says, uh, verse 18, on that day, again, Genesis 15, 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, From the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now just step back and think. Wow, that's a chunk of real estate. Uh, You're talking, what what river is the river of Egypt? It's got to be the Nile. uh, And the river Euphrates, way out there in Iraq... Has Israel ever possessed all of that land as theirs, as their peaceful property? Not yet, no. Never once has it possessed all of that land. Even in the greatest, highest level, when Solomon, King David and Solomon were kings, they didn't have control, peaceful military and happy control of that where old people sat in the streets of Bethlehem, excuse me, Jerusalem, sipping their espressos in safety. And they lived so long; they all had canes, and the children were happily playing. Remember, I had to chase the kids off of the platform. That's kind of a good sign, you know. That's kind of a sign, maybe, of a healthy church when you have to chase the kids off the platform to preach. I could do more of that, but you know, that's the, the image of God's blessing: is that children play in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure children do play in the streets of Jerusalem to this day. But it's not quite the same. Jerusalem is not a united city. You know, uh, our, our our President Trump uh, recently made great waves, right, by saying, okay, we're going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, something Israel would like to do. But the whole world is saying, no, 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 Tel Aviv. It's got to be Tel Aviv, not, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not dwelling in safety at this time, uh, this promise to Abram is yet to be fulfilled, listen to Exodus 23, 31. And I will set your border, I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, I'm not sure what that is, that's probably the Mediterranean, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, very similar to those, the same... Dimensions, uh, as the Nile, this is a little bit closer, but it's still a long ways. The Red Sea all the way over to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Again, honestly, Joshua was committed, commissioned to do that, and they never fully did that. Drive out all the people of the land. They're still there uh, all the way through. So, I, I, like I said, I believe these promises are yet to come in an earthly way. Uh, God loves creation. He loves physical creation. And he shows his glory in how he reveals himself in an actual earthly, physical way. And I think it will be fulfilled in what we call the millennium of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I hope that lightly, it might not Work out that way, Uh, but it seems to be pointing that way. And and as I said earlier, there's a lot more in Zechariah that we'll get to over the coming weeks that fit into that scenario as well. But let's look back at at the text. So we have God saying, I'm going to do all this. Huge emphasis. Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, over and over, which is saying, I'm the God of all capability. I am the Lord Almighty. I'm the mighty God. And look how he concludes this. I love this. We might say, is this even possible? How, how, what are you talking about? We, we don't even know who the Jews are. We lost we lost ten tribes. You know, where are they? We don't. How can this be possible? It's impossible to think that this could actually happen. So let's just say that it's a metaphor for something else to happen. And I think, honestly, I think God gets to that as, as he um, continues on in this text. Let me read a little bit more. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who are present on the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts, was laid that the temple might be built. Oh, forgive me. I made a brief mistake. I meant to go up to verse 6. Thank you. Rewind. First time I preached the sermon. (laughs) Verse 6 is what I wanted to get to before I moved on to uh, verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days... See, they're saying, how can this happen? This is too marvelous. It's too wonderful. It's too incredible. Uh, There's no way that can happen. Is this even possible? We don't think so. I just love the answer to this. Should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. He's saying... You might look at it, scratch your head, and say, I don't think that's possible. But you're talking about the strength of God here. He is the Lord of hosts. Should it be marvelous in his eyes as well? Let me ask this question. What overwhelms God? See, when we come to the Bible, we're learning about some person who's completely different from us. In, in theology, they say he's the holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely different from us. He created us. We're creature. We're creation. He's uncreated. He's above time and space. He created time and space as dimensions. He's bigger and more massive than you. You and I can never even imagine. I, I mean, I, I envision eternity Well, we're just marveling at the nature of God and what he has done forever and ever. So what overwhelms God? Is this too hard for God? Is our theological conclusion based on, well, you know, how could that ever happen? That seems ridiculous. Uh, Here's a good image of this. What overwhelms God? We kind of think God's some sort of donkey pulling an overweight cart, right? God can't do that. God can't resurrect. The Bible says that every human being, whoever lived, will be resurrected. Their body will be resurrected. You know, I ask you, how many molecules of Adam are still in one piece? <laughs> I don't think there's any. I, I really don't know. I haven't investigated this. Um, but I do believe Adam's body will be raised. And it says that which goes into the ground, that will be raised. Incorruptible. Well, what overwhelms God? He's shockingly powerful, way beyond our ability to even describe how powerful he is. Nothing overwhelms God. And God's put out billions of illustrations of this. Uh, I, love, I love nature. I love thinking about the things around us. Uh, there's this thing called pyrescence. And this happens to be a lodgepole pine cone. The crazy thing about these pine cones is they're, they're filled with a resin and sap all inside of them that does not allow them to open. And in normal day-to-day life, the lodgepole pine cone doesn't open. It doesn't do its job. But then, lo and behold, what happens? A fire sweeps through the forest... And the crazy thing opens up, and it drops its seeds. And it, the seeds happen to love, and this is marvelous, by the way, the seeds happen to love the charcoal-enriched soil. And the lodgepole pines rejuvenate the, the forest. It's fantastic. And, and there's billions of such illustrations that, you, you know, evolution, always tries to come up with some, you know, these trees are really smart, they planned ahead, and they thought, "Well, I've got a lot of sap here, but I think the fire might melt it. How much sap should we put in there? Just enough, you know." You know, honestly, I, I can't—I abel- can't believe that people think that all of this happens by freakish, unintelligent happenstance. No, it is the the wisdom and nature of our God. It is marvelous. And and while we're on marvelous, can I pause for a second? And tell you about something else, super marvelous. Um, on Friday, the Jorgensons had a grandson. Your fourth grandchild, I think. And he's also my 14th grandchild. So it's a marvelous thing to, to think that Friday evening at about uh, 8.50 p.m., our daughter, this is her sister, uh, gave birth to a baby. This baby started as a, you know, two cells coming together. And they grew, and they became a human being. And there's, there's like a, more than a trillion cells there wrapped up in that blanket. Seriously. We can't even count how many cells. I, I, I'm like, you know, like a bunch more trillion than our... our his name is Finleif Oak. Isn't that cool? Finleif Oak Jorgensen. It's, it's marvelous. It, you know, God, please knock the scales from our eyes so that we're we're blown away by the beauty that's all around us, that's surrounding us. God is infinitely powerful. He deserves our praise and our love. And of course, marvelous is, is the cross of Christ. We should marvel at this. Not only does he create us, and we rebel against him, we're sinners, and we go away, he, he's zealous in his love toward us, and in his jealousy he pursues us, and and his wrath is borne by Christ on the cross for us. You know, unbelievable. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, God forbid that we give it a golf clap. It's very nice. I almost wanted to yell at you folks this morning, but I didn't. <laughs> Why? I'm sorry after the song, somebody started clapping we. This is very nice. Very nice indeed. Good shot. <laughs> you know, but in all, all, all the circumstances being equal, we should be uh, yelling hallelujah. And, and I know in your heart, you are all yelling hallelujah. Uh, it is marvelous. So this is my question. Have we lost our marvelous? We're filled with marvels. And, uh, you know, I went out to watch the latest Star Wars movie. It's just amazing what they do. Like I, My son told me that, that, that the real bad guy, his name was like Snook or something like that, he's completely computer generated. I said to him, wow, what a makeup job that guy had. Not even there. <laughs> the computers are able to make human beings at this time. So I think we kind of lost our marvels. Our, and uh, let me read a few of... Marvelous, by the way, is one of the words that the Bible loves. And, and it's actually, honestly, if you scratch me deep enough, you'll find out that's why I'm in the ministry. Because I want to I marvel at God. I want to marvel at who he really is and how powerful and wonderful he really is. Uh, this is first chronicles 16:24. Let me read it for you somewhat humorously, you know, quietly suggest his glory among the nations, you know, in a subdued manner. <laughs> Very polite, not to step on anybody's toe, mention how marvelous God is. You know, no that, that no it says declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Job has some great references to marvelous. This is the same Hebrew word uh, it's, it's a lot of times in the Old Testament. Job five nine says this, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things. Without number. You know, I I can't do anything marvelous, hardly. But maybe once in a while I can do something decent, right? But he does marvelous things without number. You can't even number how awesome and amazing he is. And Job repeats that same thing in, in 9, 10. Who does great things beyond searching out. And marvelous things beyond number. Here's Psalm 96, verse 3, which is actually a repeat of 1 Chronicles 16, 24. It says, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation him. Psalm 118, verse 23. This is a good one. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This, this is something God did. <laughs> it's marvelous in our eyes. You know, it beats something come out of Cupertino. It's better than the Apple iPhone X. <laughs> of course, it, it, God creates the entire universe. We can't, we don't, we can't number the stars. We think they might be infinite. It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm one thirty one, verse one. Oh Lord, I love this one too. It's a great prayer. Psalm one thirty one. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. It's just saying, oh Lord, I, I'm humbled at your, in your presence. Here's Micah 7.15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So let's get back some of our marvels. Let's, let's, let's motivate ourselves with how great God is. And how amazing he is. Beloved ones who are agapetas. Those who are loved. You loved ones. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For love we love because he first loved us. Now. I want to think about, uh, there's a lot of things to think about, and this is sort of, uh, I can't think about all of them, right? One message. But let me read the rest of the text as I started to earlier. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You know, based on this revelation of who I am and that my jealousy motivates me to save my people to the extent of the cross, I save my people Therefore you be strong, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing the words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. That's a lot in that sentence. He's saying, talking to the people in the day of Zechariah, saying they had been hearing the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and he's saying be strong you listen to the word of god now trust the word of god uh, and you saw the foundation being built it will be completed verse 10 for before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in for i set every man against his neighbor there was no economic stability God himself, the sovereign God, broke apart the economic stability. He said, I set every man against his neighbor. The one who breaks apart economic stability is the only one who can restore it, ultimately. And he's saying, I will restore it. There will be wages. You will build. It will happen again. Verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Again, I see a uh, multiple layer fulfillment here. It definitely happened in the life of these people. They restored Jerusalem and they went back to the crops and the land gave its produce to them. But it also hearkens to a time of greater fulfillment in the future, in, in my estimation. Uh, verse 13, And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. So this is the first message. He's saying, based on my revelation and based on the fact that I love you intensely, I want you to be strong. Uh, you know, This is great news for 2018 for you and I. We need to be strong believers. We need to be active in our faith in the Lord. He says, fear not, but let your hands be strong. That particular phrase is three times in the Bible, twice in our passage. Uh, He's saying, hold hold on tight. Things are not going to be easy. I've made these great promises. I will fulfill my promises. But in the time being, you keep strong in your faith. And you keep trusting the word of God through this time. Uh, Colby and I lost my slides. You keep trusting in the Lord during this time. Uh, I'm going to restore you. Verse 14 now. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Look look at this. Why do bad things happen to the people of Israel? Why do bad things happen to anybody? What does the Bible say about that? Does it say that God's out of control and these bad things happen because God isn't adequate enough to stop them? Uh, No, that's not the nature of God. God is the sovereign God over everything. And he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Uh, That doesn't say it's easy or wonderful or pleasant, but it does say that he's in control and he will solve the problem uh, also later on. The one who causes the economic collapse is the only one who can restore the economy. As I mentioned back up in verse 10, the same is true in the bigger picture. Uh, look, look what this word of God says. He says, "As I purposed to bring disaster to you, when your fathers provoked Me to wrath." Now, why did they go off to Babylon in captivity? Why did the Babylonians come and smash the holy temple that was built by Solomon, one of the probably the, arguably the most beautiful building ever built by human beings? Now, why did that happen? Does it prove God's out of control. Oh, God's going, oh, oh, I suffer with you. I, We're here and I wish I could stop it, but I just have to let people do what they want to do because they have free will and I can't stop their free will. Okay, a lot of that kind of stuff goes on out there in the Christian world, but it's not biblical. And praise God, it's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one who's he's actually in control even when it seems chaotic, because he says, I, look at it, this is the word of God. This is the God we marvel at. I purposed <coughs> I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath. I don't say that in a joyful, gleeful way. I'm like, ha, 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 look at this. I'm just saying, this is the God of the Bible. And we have to get our theology straight from the word of God. You hear far too many people with weak hands. Far too many Bible teachers with weak hands. They can't can't grasp true biblical theology, so they drop it, and they let it go and say, no, we don't really believe that. Uh, and, And I'm just saying, please, let's let God define himself. But it doesn't end there, does it, thank God? He says, I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah fear not fear not i will bring salvation and here's the way the whole big scenario has played out through all generations i can't say that i know it all but god created man and man rebelled against god he sinned and god cursed the whole earth and man with man will die will be separated from God forever because of that. And God's curse is what causes all disease, all death, and eternal separation from God in hell is caused by God's wrath on our sin. But at the same time, this God who creates the problem as a result of our sin, He fixes the problem. He's the only one who can fix it. And he says, I purposed in those days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So therefore, we have faith in God. Verse 16. Now, this is ex- extremely practical. Based on this theology that is taught in Zechariah 8, based on this theology, what should we do? These are the things you shall do. And I have a slide for this that closes his off. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Very simple things. Be honest with one another. Don't lie. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. As God has given us ability to make judgments, let us do so that truthfully and peacefully. And uh, when we have power over a situation, let's work for truth and peace in those situations. Do not devise evil in your hearts against another. There seems to be a problem going on in their culture. He said the same thing in 7.10. Uh, remember that. We looked at that just last week. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. You know, if, if God is real, if he's the God of jealousy, he wants us, all of us, he wants our heart if he's the God of marvels and strength, the Lord of hosts, then we who are saved by him need to live for him in full honesty and with full heart. He, he says, love no false oath. And then finally, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. That's the real practical outcome then of this message. If God is who he said he is, We should love him. We should live for him in 2018. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we've taken a dip into your precious word. It's a powerful word. And we pray, oh, Lord, that you would open our heart to see you, to love you, to worship you, to praise you, and to live for you with all sincerity. Um, Dear Lord, uh, open our heart and eyes to see you today. In Jesus' name, amen.